And it's a great pleasure now to introduce Martin, who's going to lead us off with knowing Jesus. So let's welcome Martin. Well, good morning. Great to see you. I won't be here next Sunday, as you can tell. But there's one person I'm really looking forward to meeting when I go to Zambia because I'm conducting leadership training for pastors, 25 or 30 churches all over Zambia, and they're coming to a northern location. And I'm told about one of these men who leads a church in a village in the south of the country. And this is what I've been told about him. I have been told that in order to get to the monthly training that they do, mostly by video, but this time live, he walks from his village for three hours to the main road. He catches a bus into the capital city, which is known as Lusaka, which is a five or six hour bus. By the time he gets to Lusaka, it's in the middle of the night. He goes to the central bus station and waits there for a bit until the next bus comes. And then he does another four or five hour journey to the north of the country for a weekend's training. How about that? I'm going to look for this guy. And I'm going to be amazed to meet him, to think, what dedication to travel that far. He leads a church in a village in the middle of nowhere, so to speak, in that amazing country of Zambia. And I'm helping them with their training. Now, so that's what I'll be doing next Sunday. So I hope you have a wonderful time. We'll be warmer than you are. However good the boiler is, and it's better this Sunday than it was last Sunday, it's not going to be as warm as we are going to experience out there in Central Africa, in Northern Zambia. We're talking about knowing Jesus. I want you to come with me in your imagination, a bit like, you know, when the BBC get the satellite television pictures and they're zooming in on a place. Have you ever noticed that on the television? Sometimes other channels do it too. First of all, get the satellite picture of the world, and then you get the country, and then you get the area, then you get the town, and then you get the house, and then you get the person. Do you know what I mean? Have you seen that sort of thing? Well, we're going to do a little bit of that in your imagination. We're going back to the first century now, and we're going to try and find somebody incredibly important in the New Testament who's going to teach us a lot about the subject that we're talking about today. And we're focusing in our satellite map on the country of Turkey. Some of you have been to Turkey, and all of you know roughly where it is and what it looks like. And we're going to the south of Turkey, and we're focusing in as the satellite images come tighter and tighter and more and more focus on a place called Tarsus. It's on the southern coast of Turkey, looking towards Cyprus. And as we go into this city, we see it's a big city. It's um, wealthy. We see soldiers walking around the streets. We see a university. We see lots of trading going on. We see it's near the sea, and there's a port, um, and there's, uh, it's, a, it's a wealthy and happy city. And then we focus in on a building, a little building in the corner of the city, and it happens to be a synagogue where the local Jewish community are meeting, just a small Jewish community in this great Roman Greek city of Tarsus. And as we go into this synagogue, we see the um, the man at the front is doing the readings and the prayers and everything. And on the front row uh, is a father with his son. And this little son, aged about eight or ten, has been allowed into the synagogue. Very earnest young boy. And we've identified the person we need to follow. And his name is Paul. 
And he grew up in the synagogue here. And he really enjoyed living in that city. He was well-educated. He enjoyed all the culture of the city. He spoke brilliant Greek language. He spoke brilliant Hebrew language. And he got on really well. His dad was a full-orbed citizen, so he had a full legal status of Roman citizenship. So he was very happy there. And then one day, the synagogue leader and his dad got talking. They said, you know, Paul, he's such an able religious guy. And he's one of these people. Have you ever come across somebody you describe as precocious? Do you know what I mean by precocious? They can talk for England or Wales or whatever it happens to be. Their brain is going in a million miles an hour. They've, they've explored everything on the internet before you have. They know the answer to the question before you said it. You know that sort of person? Paul was like that. Really annoying. <laughs> His brain was absolutely brilliant. He was really focused. He's really religious. And the, the leader of the synagogue said, I think Paul ought to go over to our city over in Israel, in Jerusalem. Let's send him to boarding school over there. And let's send him to the top teacher. The top rabbi, his name is Gamaliel, and he was the most well-known teacher, Jewish teacher at the time. It's like a physicist in the 20th century saying, you can go and study with Einstein, that sort of thing. And so Paul leaves Tarsus, and he goes off as a youngster, as a teenager, and he goes to Jerusalem, the religious capital. He gets caught up in Judaism, the Jewish faith, this amazing teaching. He learns everything by heart. You know these amazing people who can remember everything by heart? Do they annoy you as well? Isn't it amazing? They just memorize everything. Their brains just like, it just absorbs all the information. Well, Paul was like, they just absorbed everything that people gave him. And he could talk for Israel. And he became a Pharisee. That was like the, the top sect who were the most serious about their faith. So you're getting the general picture. He came from this amazing Greek city. He ended up in the, in the amazing Jewish city. He was right at the center of the faith. And then one day, the rabbis in the, in, the, in, the, in the institution said, you never guess what, there's some nutcase in Jerusalem called Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul thought, well, who's that nutcase coming down from Galilee? And of course, he was crucified and resurrected. Six weeks later, there was a great outpouring of the Spirit. The church was born, and Paul was absolutely furious. He was as angry as anyone in Jerusalem that these people, he said, I'm going to go and get them. Have I got the permission to go and chase these people? And eventually started chasing them around, putting them in prison, threatening their lives. He was absolutely against it because he thought it was against God. Then one day, of course, he went on a journey up to Damascus. And you probably remember what happened. Jesus appealed to, appeared to him and everything changed. Do you remember that story? So that's the kind of story that I want you to think about. This is the man we're talking about. That's his background. Now, fast forward 25 years. Paul's been on the road as an apostle, serving Jesus, planting churches, going all over the place. He's been back to Tarsus to live there for a bit, and he's been all over, the, and he's done some amazing things. He nearly got killed. He's been put in prison two or three times. Now he's in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's allowed to rent his own flat, but a Roman soldier has to, has to sit in the next room and has to guard him night and day. And um, he's writing to some of his friends 25 years later, after uh, being in Jerusalem when the church was first born. 25 years later, we're now going to go straight into the heart of Paul. And we're going to see what does he tell us about our topic today, knowing Jesus. Here's a guy who had everything in the world. And as a result of following Christ, 
things change very dramatically. So come with me, if you have a Bible, to uh, Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to read through, verse by verse, uh, a passage here. 25 years later, Paul's under house arrest in Rome, and he's writing to his friends in Philippi, where he planted a church. And this is what he says, verse 4. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more reasons. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, um, based on the law, faultless. Uh, who can say that? I mean, it's an amazing statement, isn't it? I was as Jewish as they come. I had as many reasons as possible to be proud of my heritage. I did everything right. I was the right person. I was an elite. I was born into the right family, studied in the right school, ended up with the right qualifications, and everything about me is um, right in that sense. And then, amazingly, look what he says in the next verse. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Wow. Everything that Paul had Reputation, money, status, educational qualifications, religious reputation, every single thing he had to lose in order to follow Christ from his own people, the Jews. They stripped him of all those things. They called him the scum of the earth. They took up stones to kill him in place after place. When he came to Jerusalem once and he got into the temple, there was an immediate riot, and they literally tried to tear him limb from limb until the Roman soldiers came in and intervened and bunged him in prison to save his life. Are you getting the feeling of what he's saying? Carrying on. I consider them garbage. Garbage. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, Paul had made such an astonishing discovery that he was willing to throw everything else away for that simple discovery. He had been trying to build up right standing with God by his religious life, and he'd achieved about as high as you could get in those days in his religious achievements. And he suddenly realized when he met Christ on the Damascus Road and following that, that that wasn't the way at all, that he'd never, ever succeed if he went down that path, but that something else was happening in him. He was receiving, by faith, the righteousness that comes from God. This is a technical expression that's right at the center of Paul's thinking. It appears a number of times in, in the New Testament. 
And this is the foundation of our faith. Let me just lay this foundation again so we're all absolutely clear. Most people think Christianity is a moral code that leads you to a higher and higher level. And hopefully, if you do well enough in life, God will accept you in the next life. That's what most people believe Christianity is. Would you accept that? That's what most people believe in our nation. That is the prevailing view. Paul believed that Jewish faith was something similar like that. When he met Christ, he realized that Christianity was nothing like that at all. That in an encounter with Christ, there is a literal transaction whereby the sinfulness within you, which you'll never be able to escape, however you hard you try, is taken from you as a primary nature through Christ's death on the cross. It's taken onto Jesus. And at the same time, God's righteousness, his purity, is transferred onto you by a miraculous transfer for which you have no credit. It happens simply because you turned away from your sin and you believed. And miraculously, you are made right with God before you've done anything good. Does anyone recognize that amazing reality? That's a theological kind of way of saying, I've been saved. Paul is being theological here. He's saying in Judaism, we tried to do it one way, but we can never quite get there. And then I met Christ, and he said, you can't do it anyway, but I'll do it for you if you believe and trust in me. And Paul was so electrified by this truth that he was willing to throw away or allowed to be taken away from him other things that are of great human value, secure family, secure job, secure reputation, secure home, all the things we love and we cherish for ourselves. He said, I'm willing to sacrifice all of those because I've found something better than any of them. The righteousness of God has been given to me. If you're new to this concept, or if you're interested in thinking about it biblically, there are four places in the New Testament where it's explicitly stated. I'll read the verses. You can write them down and study them for yourself. Romans 5, 15 to 19, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, and 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And on those four occasions, Paul more or less says exactly the same thing. Here he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's what Easter's all about, isn't it? To be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. Anyway, I better move on. Otherwise, we'll never get to the end of the passage. Verse 10. This is his conclusion. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So his conclusion is he, he wants to know Christ above all things. With the power that comes and also identifying with the suffering of Christ in this world, which we'll discuss a little more in a moment. Moving on. Not that I've already obtained all this, I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now that's a pretty spectacular passage, isn't it? I've gone through it verse by verse very deliberately for emphasis so we can see what Paul is talking about. Now, out of it, I want to draw six things. Six aspects of what it really means to know Christ. Let's just see these uh, coming up. We'll just look at these six. As I said at the beginning, what Paul came to understand was, you know, human pride in our own achievements is not just a distraction, it's absolutely futile in terms of our relationship with God. I wonder if I could illustrate it this way. And by the way, this is very countercultural. The gospel is very countercultural. This is a challenge to our culture. Let me illustrate it this way. I sometimes use this in the context of explaining the faith to people who are new. Can you imagine that alongside me here, and I'm looking towards it, is a bookshelf with many shelves. Now, if you go in my office, you'll see that reality and laid, laden with hundreds of books. Um, there's the bookshelf. Now, I'm going to, metaphorically speaking, put some books on the shelf. And these books are going to represent different types of people. And we're going to start with the good, and then we're going to go down the scale. Are you with me? We're going to put the best people on the top shelf, and then we're going to put different categories of people on the shelves. Are you with me? This is what we're going to do. So, right, here's my first book, and it's going right on the top shelf. In fact, the shelf is so, top shelf is so high in my office, I can't reach it without standing on a chair. So I'm not going to do that now. But anyway, that, top sh that, that book up there is Mother Teresa. Okay, and the like. You've heard of Mother Teresa, a real icon in the last era, not so well known to the younger generation, who spent all her life as a Catholic nun in Calcutta, in India, serving the poorest, and became world famous for incredible human compassion that she extended to thousands of people. Right, amongst human good people, hardly anyone would say she wasn't an amazingly good person. Would you agree? Right, second shelf, I have another book. And on the second shelf, I want to put the people who are always doing good things in society. You know, they're just good people. When, you, when you're with them, they're likely to be positive. They're likely to be helping charities. They're likely to be helping people in need. They're likely to be help their neighbor. They're on the second shelf. Can you imagine that? And on the third shelf, I'm going to put people on your street who if you ask them to uh, borrow a, a tool or something like that, they'll say, yeah, you can, you can borrow my uh, hammer, that sort of thing. You know those sort of people on the street? You know you, the sort of people you choose to ask. You know there's some people you choose not to ask, aren't there? Okay, we're coming to them in a minute. Okay, but the people you choose to ask are the ones who say, yeah, yeah, you can, you can borrow my bike. You can, uh, you know, we'll look after your house. Uh, you know, we... You know, we'll clear up the cat's mess that your cat makes on our lawn. It's okay. You know, they're sort of just good people. Okay? Are you with me so far? I've got another one here. This is a bad neighbor. Okay? Grumpy, selfish, don't talk to you. 
don't want to help you, turn the music up too loud, and park the car in front of your drive. Okay, have you ever come across people like that? Right, well, we're putting them a bit lower down, and that's how they live their life. Okay, you with me so far? And another one, a little bit lower. This is Del Boy from Only Fools and Horses. Do you remember him? David Jason in an earlier incarnation. Now, Dell was a nice guy, but he didn't play the game straight, especially in terms of trading in the markets, you know. All the stuff he got off the back of a lorry and sold for three times the price. You know it makes sense, Rodney, that sort of thing. There he is down there. And he's a nice guy, but he's not that straight. You with me so far? Underneath Del Boy, we've got people who are malicious, nasty, and no redeeming features. Del Boy's got lots of redeeming features, but he didn't have any. These don't have any. Put them down there. And on the very bottom shelf, I've got a special one, and this is called Adolf Hitler. Okay? Right. Can you see my shelf? Mother Teresa to Adolf Hitler and everything in between. On the Day of Judgment, which shelf will be the dividing line that God will make? Now, you ask anyone in the world, and they'll choose somewhere in the middle, roughly where they think they are. But Christ comes, and he looks at it, and he said, I'm going to divide it like this. Down the middle. I'm having the left half, but not the right half. That's a shock. But as soon as we as Christians begin to think about it, we, we think, oh, that does make sense, doesn't it? Because on the left-hand side, are people in every category of what we consider moral goodness who at some point in their life said, it's not enough. I'm a sinner. And do you know what happens? They took on the righteousness of God and they gave Christ the sin of their life. And on the right-hand side are people who are very self-righteous and they've done lots of good things, as well as the hardened criminals who never, ever did that. Now, Paul had this revelation. Because he was in the category thinking, well, I'm on the second shelf. You know, got my rabbi above me and that's about it. Pharisee of Pharisees. He considered himself right at the top. And when he met Christ, he realized it counted for nothing. And so human pride was overturned. Can I tell you, no one ever truly knows Christ until we truly understand that he didn't came, come to improve your life. He came to turn it upside down. And the only way he can turn it upside down is if you give it to him with no excuses and say, I have sinned. Paul discovered that. Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus, Paul, who, who are you persecuting? You're persecuting me. These people you think are obnoxious, they're my people. They've got the righteousness of God, and you haven't. It's about time that you switch sides, and he did immediately. We live in a world of self-improvement, and I've reached the age where self-improvement is an attractive option. You know, I could do something with my hair. I could move things up a bit in the middle of my face. I could tighten things a little bit around the middle. 
There's endless gurus for self-improvement. You can help me in every part of my being as it gradually fades as the years pass. And we can think spiritually like that. Maybe God could just help me sort out the weak areas of my life. Can I tell you what? He's not interested in doing that. He wants all of your life. He'll sort out the weak areas, but he'll do it on his terms. And his terms are we give him everything. Not just the bits that are sagging. Paul discovered that. And that's the first discovery to really know Christ. And then he was willing to let go of human securities. Sometimes people for following Christ, they make an initial profession, but when it comes to the cost of God wants to do something different with your money, with your relationships, God wants you to speak of your faith, they melt into the background and soon they're lost. But Paul knows you can't do that. They're lost from the church, as it were, in a visible sense. He was willing to let go of human securities. He let go of the possibility of a family and children, of a secure home. His income went down as a Christian. A lot of Christians, their income goes down, by the way, not up, because of what you give away. Or you lose your job if you're persecuted. Let's be honest. That's a worldwide fact. Paul didn't worry about that. There was always going to be enough for him. He lost his good reputation with the Jews and he had very strained relationships with many of his Jewish brothers and sisters. I remember visiting the home last year of my friends Igor and Tanya Bogomas in Ukraine who'd been forced to leave their house in the east because of the war and the house in the east is, is valueless now. So all their life investment's gone and they're living in a rented flat in another city. But they were so proud to welcome me to their fifth or sixth floor flat half the size of what they had before because they're more interested in serving God than building up a perfect security for their retirement. Thirdly, a tangible and life-changing conversion. I think I've illustrated this point very, very clearly already. Paul had a tangible and life-changing conversion. So let's beware of the view that Christ can come and prop up our life when we feel a little bit vulnerable. And that's the moment when sometimes we're open to the faith, and that's good. It's very, very good. It's a good starting point, by the way. But it's not the end destiny. He doesn't want to just prop up your life. He wants to have your life. And once he has your life, he'll redeem it, and he'll deal with all the issues that are problems to you. Don't worry, he'll be on the case to help you. But he has a much more radical plan than just helping us with the difficulties that we face along the journey. Let's move on. There are three other things. And in, in chapter 3, verse 10, we see something incredible. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection. Now, that's a very, very challenging thing, and I've been thinking about this verse for many years. Do we want to know Christ just for the benefit of forgiveness of sins in a secure church? Or do we want his power to come into our life? Power to deal with the complex family issues. Power and energy to deal with the complex work life that we face. 
Power to witness to other people. Power to change our characters. The fruit of the Spirit come from Galatians 5. Power to give us spiritual gifts to do miracles and things like that. That's Paul's aspiration. He wanted power in his life. He wanted supernatural dimensions. He wanted, even when he was weak, he wanted Christ's power. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So even when we're weak, and we do feel weak so often, we can experience his power in everyday life, in very practical things. We can experience power to help other people and to witness in all sorts of different things. Is that your desire? Or have you settled back for a Christianity where you don't really expect much? If we've settled back into that, I don't really expect much. We've fallen short of the biblical norm. Let's expect him to work. And then a choice to obey Christ when it's a difficult path. Verse 10 suggests that it's not just power for our own benefit. We're actually participating in the sufferings of Christ because we're connecting with the fact that we take up our cross. He was rejected. We'll be rejected. He's concerned for the poor. We need to be concerned for the poor. He gave his life. We need to give our lives. There's a cost. And those who want to know Christ... Obey his call, even when it's a difficult path. And for many of us, it is actually a difficult path for one reason or another. And then finally, verse 12 and 13 suggest to us that Paul was likening the Christian life to a race. He says, I'm not looking behind. I've been at it for 25 years. I'm getting towards the end of my life. I'm in prison at the moment. But I'm looking towards the future. I want to win the prize. And is that prize salvation? No, it isn't. We've just realized that salvation can't be earned. What is the prize? The prize is the reward of God saying on the day that we come to him, well done. You used the opportunities I gave you. That's my heart cry for my life. I just want to use the opportunities that he gives me. I want to be found faithful. And in order to that, I need to not look behind me. I need to keep looking forward. How can I be faithful in this part of my life? How can you be faithful? What's he asking you to be faithful to? What circumstances, what responsibilities, what jobs, what ministries? Are you, he just wants you to be faithful to those things until the next thing opens up. Paul doesn't want to get to the end of the race and God say, well, Paul, I asked you to do this and you didn't bother. You just turned away. He can't bear the thought of that. He wants to be faithful so that he ends the race with a reward and not salvation, but a sense of unfulfillment of the things that he was called to do. It's just the things we're called to do, not the things that other people should be doing. It's just your life and what you're called to do and what you have opportunity to do. Don't worry about anything else. It's only that that counts. Occasionally, when I have the courage, I do the park run. There's some people here who do it quite a lot, 5K. Very painful experience. I don't recommend it. And when I do, when I do it and start talking to people there, they had a little question they kept asking me. I didn't know what it meant to start with. They said, what's your PB? I thought, 
PB? What's that? Personal best. Did you beat your PB? Did you get best today? You know, all that sort of, sort of constant conversation. Well, the great thing is God doesn't look at it like that. He's not asking us to do better and better. He's asking us to go on one race in one life at the speed you can go according to your circumstances. He wants finishers, not competitors. And you know in the park run, when I finished, and there's a lot of people ahead of me, and there's a lot of people behind me, I'm somewhere in the middle, I look at the side, and, and, I, and I sometimes look at some old guy who's about 75, <laughs> slightly older than me, or some lady who's obviously not been used to exercising, and they're coming in very slowly, and I can just see them. They're coming to the race, and people are saying, well done, well done, well done, well done. And they get across the line. And could they care less about PB and winning the race? They, they, they just want to get to the line. Still running, not being carried. And Paul's desire, not competing with anyone else, but just to be faithful to the things that God called him to do in his life. In my life, that means being faithful to the ministries that I've been called to, and it also means, for example, looking after my wife who has health difficulties regularly and faithfully for as long as it takes. And that's what I'll do. That's my race. It's not yours. But you know, you know what yours is. So we keep looking forward. We don't stagnate. We don't stop running. What are we called to do? Let's do it well. A few tips at the end, practical things. If we want to know Christ, can I say the very best way to know him is through the word. These are the very scriptures which testify about me, said Jesus in John 5 when talking to the Jews. There's nothing better than immersing yourself, especially in the Gospels and meditating on Jesus' life and the implications of the incidents and the teachings. You could spend your whole life doing that. I'm passionate about that. So passionate that on invitation, I'm now writing a course which I pioneered in Barnabas a few years ago called Into the Word. And I'm going to run it as a 10 day video course in Cumbria, the invitation of some churches there, and it's going to be a video resource to help any Christian at any stage in your life to use any part of the Bible effectively to know Jesus and to follow him. Secondly, through prayer. For some people, the greatest issue in life is to make time and find a place to pray to Jesus and to our Father. Thirdly, through church life. It's amazing how church life stimulates our knowledge of Christ because we learn about him through others, teaching, worship, gifts of the Spirit, fellowship, what happens in other people's lives, prayer partnerships, mentoring, discipling, fellowship amongst men or women in special groups, whatever it happens to be. 
And then it's active obedience, daily being open to the Holy Spirit's leading. And finally, and very, very importantly, and this leads on to the next part of our vision, knowing Jesus is making him known in any way that we possibly can. And we'll be hearing more about that in future talks. Let's stand together. I'd like to have the band in front. pray. Let me just read that verse again. I want to know Christ. Maybe we could find that verse, Tom, uh, 3.10. Put it up on the screen. Thank you so much. Just meditate on this for a moment. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Let that be our passion. Lord, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for those who've been before. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you literally... Give us your righteousness when we come to you. You take our sin. We thank you you transform our lives, but we want to allow you to do that more thoroughly. We thank you that you want to give us power to live our lives. And Lord, we want to seize that moment today to say, yeah, we want that power. We need that power. We want to identify with you, Lord, and to thank you so much for everything you've done for us. Renew our zeal today to know Jesus. We pray. Amen. Amen. Keith will lead us in a song that he's chosen.